0: This week, questions asked about Afghanistan's strategy after another green on blue shooting. And where does US presidential candidate Mitt Romney stand on foreign policy? And the Paralympic Games arrive in London.
1: I declare open the London 2012 Paralympic Games.
0: Hello, I'm Glenn Mansell. Welcome to Citrep. Three Australian soldiers have been killed by a man in Afghan army uniform in the latest in a series of so-called green-on-blue attacks. A tough week in Afghanistan. has also seen 10 Afghan soldiers killed in a Taliban assault on a checkpoint and two U.S. soldiers killed by their Afghan allies after a dispute broke out during a joint patrol. Despite these incidents, NATO's senior civilian representative in Afghanistan has been speaking of the progress he's seen during his time in office. Ambassador Sir Simon Gass is leaving his role after 18 months, but he says the country is much more capable than it was and that its security forces are on track for transition we need this force to be a big force because that's who we hand over the security of this country to and that means that we will save the
2: lives of far more of our service men and women because they will no longer be in the lead uh, in fighting the insurgency i see very clearly that they all understand the need to prevent a return to those awful days of 1992 1993
0: when shells were raining down on afghan citizens living in kabul Ambassador Sir Simon Gas. Now joining us from Kabul is the BBC's Quinton Somerville. Quinton, welcome to sit. Rep, first of all, what's the latest on the Australian shooting, please?
3: Well, the circumstances are all too f- familiar. The three soldiers who were killed by the Afghan uh, National Army soldier were relaxing at the time when he turned his weapon on them. He also injured another two. Uh, we've seen, I think, something like 15 so called green on blue incidents this month alone. Clearly, This number is increasing, and for Australia, it's been it's been a very bad 24 hours because not only did they lose these three soldiers to the Green on Blue incident, they lost another two in a a helicopter accident. And for for a country which has a force of about 1,500 people, this has been a very, very bad 24 hours for Australia. Is the biggest concern in Afghanistan at the moment these Green on Blue attacks? I think uh, they are critical for a number of reasons. You just heard Sir Simon Gass there in your introduction saying how vital it is that the Afghan National Army are ready to take control when British troops and American troops leave at the end of 2014. Now, they will only be ready if uh, they are properly trained, and the people that are doing the training are British soldiers, American soldiers, uh, and, and foreign soldiers. Committing to that training gets all the more difficult if there's no trust. And last year, uh, ISAF admitted that there was a crisis of trust between uh, international forces and, uh, uh, and their Afghan partners, and that was before we saw this epidemic of green on blues. And you, when you're out with the soldiers, they tell you it's always about balancing risk. It's about assessing a threat when they're dealing with their Afghan colleagues. Well, that risk just seems to grow greater and greater as months go by. Are you noticing a change in the mood in Afghanistan? I think uh, soldiers on the ground are always very realistic. Uh, there's been, it's certainly been a, a change in, in tactics, if you like, that there's always a guardian angel around, there's always someone armed uh, when there are armed Afghans around. Um, it's worth pointing out, though, that there was a guardian angel on duty, we believe, when those three Australians were killed there have been various other uh, attempts to try and increase security, to try and improve awareness. The Afghans say that they're doing far better screening than they were before of recruits into the Afghan army, but that's an impossible job. This is an army uh, a security force which is almost 300,000 strong. Ten years ago it barely existed, and the last year it's grown by about 100,000. When you're uh, expanding that uh, force at such a rate, of course you can't monitor the kind of candidates who are coming in, Clearly, they haven't been able to. Let's talk about Pakistan, if we can, Quentin. How important is that to the whole scenario? It's vital. Uh, There will be no peace in this region without the cooperation of Pakistan for one very simple reason. Three of the main uh, insurgent groups that operate in Afghanistan are all based, they're all headquartered in Pakistan. Of course, Islamabad denies that and denies that uh, parts of its military or indeed its intelligence service might be giving support to insurgents but it's a it's a fact that uh, many of the troops that come flying across the border or come uh, pouring across the border into Afghanistan uh, are based, are supplied and helped from Pakistan. Well, Pakistan really needs to change its mindset. I don't see any indication that they are willing to, uh, to engage in helping bring the Taliban to the negotiating table. Uh, Pakistan has a very different agenda from other regional players in this, uh, in this world and there's been no indication that they're willing to change. BFBS Analyst Christopher Lee is
0: with me in the studio. Your thoughts on Pakistan at this point, Christopher?
4: Pakistan's always been the key, but as Quentin sort of suggests there, it's not just Pakistan. Um, this is a regional problem to be resolved. If it can be resolved, and so relations between Pakistan and India are very important because the ambitions of India, are perhaps what they want to see uh, in Afghanistan, the Central Asian republics become extraordinarily important in a in a in a Afghanistan without, let's say, NATO forces, and that's the complications of it. Incidentally, I think these green on blue uh, attacks, a very few of them actually, when you see the size of the army and see the size of the security problem Um, Quentin, just a thought on this Um, I go to Brussels and sculling around Brussels at the moment in the military committee, etc is a report on the condition of NATO um, and the future chances of getting a settlement and being able to withdraw, if you like honourably, is quite different from Sir Simon Gass's
3: uh, uh, thoughts there. I mean, how do you rate him? Um, so Simon is uh, a professional diplomat and, and perhaps one of the, one of the uh, one of the best in the Foreign Office. But his job is to to be um, to be positive about what's going on here, uh, uh, just the same as it is for for General Allen. What I, what I can tell you is that there is. There's almost a double speak that takes place in, in Afghanistan where you will meet senior diplomats, you will meet senior military figures, and they will say publicly that everything's all going well and ISAF and NATO's uh, constant refrain is uh, we are on track, the mission is on track, we won't deviate from that. But when, when you speak to these individuals privately, they'll talk about their concerns, they'll talk about their worries, they'll talk about the huge challenge ahead. For example, the Afghan Air Force. Uh, here is an air force, air power will be critical in any handover but the Afghan air force has over 200 air assets, most of them are grounded because they don't have the expertise and they don't have the ability to get their helicopters and keep their aircraft in in air so there's an exasperation if you like, there's a lot of ambition and you hear a lot of positivity but there's an exasperation about the the realities on the ground and you're absolutely right, green on blue uh, the numbers of green on blue are are tiny in comparison uh, to to the the number force numbers involved, but the effect that they have on morale is exponential, and they are increasing. Quinton, is President Karzai doing enough? Uh, in what respect? President Karzai? can you imagine being President Karzai, and waking up every morning and, and dealing with the problems that you have to face in this country? It's a pretty tough job, I, I think. He certainly isn't doing enough to tackle corruption. This is one of the most corrupt uh, governments in the world. Perhaps that's what happens when you have millions of dollars or millions of pounds, British taxpayers' money, flooding into this country, the, one of the poorest in the world, and billions of American dollars flooding into uh, this this country. It's bound to uh, have, uh, have an, an unintended effect but President Karzai has not been doing what he has promised which is to tackle corruption within this country as the years go by more and more money disappears in Afghanistan and this is a country which really ha- has lost out on, on many of the riches that have been flowing through it and you sometimes wonder after 10 years of war why isn't it that Afghanistan is a, sh- shouldn't Afghanistan be a far better place a far better country a far safer country than it is at the moment Will it ever be peaceful? Well, we've just, what are we into now? We're over 10 years of this war, but uh, it's worth remembering that Afghanistan has suffered 30 years of war, and as Christopher was pointing out, the regional dynamics are what's going to make the difference here, because Afghanistan is a place that the world is always drawn to, always comes back to, but increasingly after 2014, it will be uh, down to the likes of Pakistan, to India, and other neighbours, to start playing a a greater role in making this country more secure. Whether they're willing to do that is open to question. That's what the British said in 1838.
0: It's been a very long war to get there. Indeed. Uh, It has been a long war. Quinton Somerville, thank you for joining us from Kabul. Thank you very much indeed. Well, let's turn to Mali now, and well, as well as those concerns about Afghanistan as they're growing, a quote from the late Richard Holbrook seems pertinent. He once said about taking on the Taliban and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan that we are fighting the wrong enemy in the wrong country. So where, are, where is the right enemy and what is the right country? In Last week... There have been fresh warnings that military intervention in northern Mali is inevitable if talks with militant Islamists controlling the area fail. Regional and Western governments fear that the area could become the next launchpad for international Islamist attacks, as Afghanistan was more than a decade ago now. It's understood. Efforts are underway to organise a joint intervention force. Joining us now is Patrick Smith, editor of Africa Confidential. Thank you for joining us, Patrick. Uh, Firstly, they've been discussing Mali at the UN, haven't they, at the moment?
2: Yes, they have. The regional organisation in West Africa, that's the Economic Community of West African States, have put a strategic plan to the UN Security Council for their consideration. And and at the heart of that is, is a regional military intervention in Mali involving some of the biggest armies in in the region, Nigeria, Côte d'Ivoire, Senegal, and so on. And uh, they cost it at around $450 million. So it's a a, a big commitment they're asking the the Security Council for, and they're big concerns both over the cost and over the phasing of the plan, how long it's actually going to take them to get the forces into northern Mali.
0: But at the moment, Patrick, uh, Patrick, at the moment, there's no talk of, of Western military forces being involved.
2: Uh, they wouldn't be involved on the ground, but I think uh, certainly I- I- in a reconnaissance and intelligence gathering sense, they would be very important. Uh, and other other states uh, outside the immediate West African region states, such as Algeria uh, and Morocco in North Africa, are also expected to be asked to get involved. Um, leading the charge on behalf of the uh, the west african states in europe is france which says it's really a matter of great urgency that this uh, this plan is put before the un agreed and uh un backing and european backing for the soldiers to get boots on the ground in mali
0: patrick is is, is there a real concern here that mali could become the breeding ground for the al-qaeda linked groups
2: well of course one of the groups that's currently fighting in northern mali is uh, al-qaeda in the islamic maghreb which is a uh, is the sort of local franchise of the Al-Qaeda that most people know about in the Middle East. And that's certainly getting stuck in. It's working with other local groups such as Ansar al-Din. And these are extreme jihadist groups. They take a pretty tough line on Sharia law and are getting, interestingly, quite unpopular with the local population who adopt a more moderate Sufi strain of Islam. Um, but uh, it's Al Qaeda and uh, Islamic Maghreb and, uh, and Sardin that have the weapons and they're laying down the law at the moment in northern Mali and, and getting stuck in
0: There are some commentators who think that uh, this could be linked to Gaddafi's death in neighbouring neighboring
2: Libya Well that was a facilitating fact, I mean certainly the fall of Uh, Muammar Gaddafi meant that the region was flooded with light arms and a lot of dissident militia groups. Um, But in truth, uh, it's been getting increasingly lawless in the Sahelian region for the last 10 years. It's a favoured route for, for people traffickers who... Take people up from the coastal states along West Africa, across the Sahara to the southern shores of the Mediterranean, and then into southern Europe by boat from there. It's also uh, used a lot by drug smugglers and weapon smugglers. So, for some time, uh, there hasn't really been much law in northern Mali and the wider Sahel. The so, this, these jihadist groups have come in to sort of fill the vacuum of a broken state, if you like.
0: In terms of the area likely to provide the next Afghanistan, is Africa the main concern at the moment? Let me bring maybe Christopher Lee in here at the moment. Well, let's let's put some a couple of things in perspective.
4: Uh, Ansar that uh, Patrick's talking about—they now control an area, or they ha- claim they control an area of northern Mali. That area is about the size of France. It's not just a tiddly bit of sort of sand. Um, the leader of that group, Omar uh, uh, old Tamaha. He says we're going to spread this revolution, and he actually means it. Now, it doesn't matter whether he's talking rhetoric or not. That's what he wants to do. And he doesn't mean it by sending forces elsewhere. He talks in terms of sort of France. Now, well, the reason that France is very concerned about this, that France has a very North African uh, diaspora in France. A lot of the militants, a lot of them being kicked around by France, etc., within France. The fear of the French is that there will be a Taliban, al-Qaeda... Uh, type operation which could actually cause havoc and cause death in France. That's why France wants to get this thing done. By the way, you can't get those African troops, the 3,500 West African troops, into Mali yet. One of the reasons that if you go into Mali, you can't control the north, you have to control the capital, and the, the existing
0: military forces in Mali, the Mali so-called government, won't let them do it. Um, Patrick, just to finish off in a, a final thought from you in a couple of sentences... Is it is Mali able to resolve these issues alone, or does it need external help?
2: No, there's no, there's no possibility of Mali resolving these issues alone, unfortunately. There, there is a political crisis precipitated by the fall of the previous elected government with a military coup earlier in the year. The army itself that Christopher referred to it, it is deeply divided and corrupt and split. Uh, what the ECOWAS troops are trying to come in to do is to strengthen the army and make it functional again. And then they hope to cooperate with that army to move northwards. But, of course, there's an issue of sovereignty, and Mali wants to be the one to handle this. So somehow the West African... Countries surrounding Mali have to allow Mali to appear to take the initiative and to run this uh, military operation and to give it the support and backing it needs. Uh, otherwise it's going to collapse and uh, collapse badly as a, as a failed state with pretty dire repercussions throughout West Africa and perhaps uh, even Southern Europe too.
0: Patrick Smith, former editor from at Form Africa Confidential, thank you very much. Still to come this week, we explore the everlasting link between the Paralympics and the military.
4: Part of his methods of rehabilitating paraplegics
0: was to get them doing sport.
1: GFES Cybrep.
0: Now the countdown to November's U.S. election has been stepped up with the Republican convention taking place and Mitt Romney's formal nomination as the party's candidate. The election is being dominated by domestic policy with the economy being the focus. But where does that leave foreign policy? Ending combat operations for American forces in Afghanistan was a crucial part of President Obama's first term. But where do the Republicans stand on the pullout timetable? Joining us now is Matthew Jamieson from the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Matthew has written a paper comparing Mitt Romney and Barack Obama's policies. Matthew, welcome to the programme.
1: Thank you. Very good to be with you.
0: Firstly, how much of a focus is there on foreign policy in this election campaign?
1: Um, Really not very much at all, um, which is surprising given the situation, of course, in Afghanistan. Um, But this election really is being consumed by the state of the American economy and uh, the budget issues and also the national debt. So it's really a domestic issue focused on bread and butter, pocketbook
0: matters. Where does Romney stand on Afghanistan, for instance?
1: Well, he has um, criticised the president for... Um, outlining the withdrawal strategy and the uh, exit from Afghanistan in 2014. But he has actually embraced that policy and said that he would, um, in all likelihood, um, carry it through, um, though the caveat is that um, he would listen to the generals on the ground, and if they recommended that it was not right at that time in 2014 to withdraw, then he would carry on. Um, but in essence, um, he has accepted most of President Obama's policy for the withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2014.
0: Uh, for some, uh, having no what seems to have be no foreign policy uh, might indicate that both Mitt Romney and his running mate Paul Ryan don't have much experience on the foreign policy. Is that a fair comment or not?
1: Um, Oh, absolutely. Um, Actually, um, this Republican presidential ticket of Romney and Ryan uh, is probably the least... um, internationally experienced uh, uh, presidential ticket and the one with the least foreign defence and security policy credentials since uh, you have to go back and look at maybe 1948 um, with Thomas Dewey and Earl Warren um, who ran against Harry Truman or even 1940 uh, when the Republican candidate was Wendell Wilkie against uh, Franklin Roosevelt. They really don't have much grasp of military affairs or foreign and defence policy.
0: Um, Christopher Lee, our BFPS analyst, how do you feel about this? Uh, uh, the, the two uh, candidates here and their foreign
4: policy. Um, well, I think I might argue with Matthew on this. I don't think almost any, uh, certainly the last four administrations, have had really much military and foreign policy experience. I mean, even Clinton and Gore didn't in '93. Bush Cheney, not really. In 2001, Bush's father did. Um, what about even Ford? Rockefeller didn't really have a grasp, and yet there were big issues such as arms control, the anti-ballistic missile treaty. Carter and Mondale seventy-seven, they didn't, and yet very quickly Carter was uh, was was being hailed as a as a peacemaker with. Uh, with Egypt and and Israel, I think traditionally, or it just works this way: a guy gets into power, he gets into the Oval Office, he gets the briefings, he does a few, he does some of the visits, he gets visits to him, he goes uh, off to places, and soon he is as good as he's ever going to be. Um, and you know uh, that included George W. Bush. Matthew, um, well, I think probably uh, George W. Bush
1: was um, quite lucky to have someone like Dick Cheney actually on his ticket in terms of uh, foreign and defense and security policy because of course Dick Cheney had served as defense secretary um, in his father's administration Um, so he did bring a a sort of a wealth of experience um, from the national security point of view and also uh, Bush Jr. was surrounded by the likes of Colin Powell and other experienced foreign policy hands and of course President Obama had um, Joe Biden, who was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, when he was tapped to run as his vice-presidential running mate. Um, but, of course, I, I do agree with Christopher that once the president is elected, um, they will have, a, you know, a quotier of advisers and officials, um, old, experienced foreign policy hands. Um, but in terms of the two leading uh, candidates on this ticket, they're very much from a sort of a business, a domestic background, Um, their focus is very much on economic and fiscal matters.
0: Let's uh, let's turn to Afghanistan, which of course is important for for our listeners. Uh, Romney's likely to make his speech at the convention later. Is he likely to mention Afghanistan?
1: Mm, I'm sure he he will, um, because it is such an important issue uh, in terms of uh, the United States' position in the world and security and the fact that they have so many armed personnel serving there. Um, so I think that he will mention it. But... M- both parties really aren't talking about Afghanistan, because the American public I saw a poll recently that showed about 60% think that the United States should really no longer be there, and they've stayed far too long, and it's time to sort of really wind down the commitment and of course the the war has uh, cost about nearly $500 billion Um, so the public in America are very very war-wary and both parties are really not engaging too much on that issue.
0: Uh, Romney has cited Russia as the United States' main concern. Uh, Surely we're we're looking into history here. Now, why would he say that? Um, Well, he he would probably say that because I feel as
1: though the Republican Party um, has had a problem with foreign policy and uh, America's role in the world really since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Um, And that has sort of thrown... The, the role of America and um, foreign policy in general into disarray. And Republicans in general also, um, they like to look back upon those days, the, sort of the heyday of Reagan and uh, the end of the Cold War. Um, and he probably, along with his advisers who are surrounding him, and um, people like Richard Williamson and uh, Robert Kagan, uh, They view the uh, regime in Moscow as being actually quite hostile to American interests, backing um, state actors that are also very hostile to American interests, Um, and... I think um, a lot of the neoconservatives who would be surrounding Romney would like very much a, a harder, more aggressive line taken against Russia.
0: And, 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 of course, Christopher Lee is now going to jump in and say, it's the economy, stupid, isn't it? I, yeah, I
4: mean, Clinton almost said it's the economy, stupid, rather famously. But since post-war post-Second World War America, I imagine every election has been the economy. stupid. And so where is Afghanistan? It's only two years later they're supposed to be coming out. still the economy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you very much indeed. And, and a big thank you also to you uh, as well. Matthew, thank you very much. Matthew Jameson, Edrusi. thank you. Thank you
2: very much. This is
0: BFBS. So... The London Paralympics are underway and we're already being proclaimed the biggest ever. The event has come a long way since 1948 when a sports competition for people who had injured their spines while fighting in the Second World War took place. The man behind that event was Sir Ludwig Gutmann, the doctor who fled Nazi Germany and believed that sport was an opportunity for people with disabling injuries. Olympic and Commonwealth Games medalist in table tennis, Philip Lewis, was one of Sir Ludwig's patients at Stoke Mandeville. Part of his methods of rehabilitating paraplegics
4: was to get them doing sport. And at the hospital, one of the sports we were encouraged to do was table tennis. And I was lucky that one of the physiotherapists, Bill Preston, actually took an interest in the fact that he could see I could play table tennis fairly well. And he ran the staff table tennis team. And I played for the staff... (laughs) For for six years, actually, I was winning games. That helped me enormously from the point of view of self-confidence, from the competitive side of it, and also from the point of view of strengthening my muscles
0: that I got left that weren't paralysed. So, great benefit to me. Before the Games got underway, the Paralympic torch visited Stoke Mandeville Hospital, where the idea for the Games was born. Attending the event was Ludwig Gutmann's daughter, Ava.
4: Even he could not
2: have dreamt that lighting a spark in the hearts, minds and bodies of Paralympians would grow to be amazing
0: sporting spectacle we are about to witness. BFPS reporter Tim Cooper joins us now. Tim, you've been looking at the history of the Paralympics this week, and it's amazing to see how far this event has come, isn't it?
5: Yeah, it's come a huge way from those 16 people taking part in the artery competition in 1948, but even more recently from Athens, where just a 1,000 people turned up one day to watch the track and field events, to this stadium we're seeing now, absolutely packed to the gunnels on the front page of every newspaper. It really has moved on. How important is the Paralympics to military personnel recovering from an injury? I think it's hugely important. Um, Let's look at one person, for example, Joe Townsend. He was delivering the Paralympic flame last night on the zip wire. Former Royal Marine, lost both of his legs in Afghanistan. He's now got something to look forward to, not just doing that last (laughs) night, which was amazing, but Rio 2016. He wants to compete in the triathlon out there. So it's giving him something to build on for the future, from a very traumatic position where his life, as it was, has finished, he's now got a new aim. So I think it's hugely important. And, of course, Christopher, the morale side of it as well. The morale side is extraordinarily
4: important. There's also people's attitudes. And it it, it also adds something else to our sort of uh, understanding of the way servicemen have been saved, their lives have been saved on the battlefield. Battlefield medicine, immediately first aid, even from amputees has increased so much that a guy can be back in the UK within hours. That's very important and these Paralympics are an
0: example of where you go from there. Thinking about that psychological side of it, this aim and challenge business, Tim, is, mm. is crucial, isn't it?
5: I think it is. I was with the American track and field team at RF Lake and Heath last week speaking to a number of them and they're all talking about the catastrophic injury that happened to them. One was injured playing basketball, of all things, military career over, life as she knew it, she said, over. And it was only with the help and support, because this this Dr. Sir Ludwig Gutmann was a revolutionary. Before that, people were sort of put in a corner and patted on the head. She was given the opportunity to re-engage and, I mean, she's done everything from rowing to, to now she's doing discus and javelin, and psychologically I think that has stopped her from falling into a malaise where she could have just sat in a corner. And do you think the Paralympics has changed perception of people with disabilities? I think it has, very much so. I mean, now you look at the, the Paralympians taking part in this, you view them as sportsmen, I do, sportsmen and women, you think they're going to achieve, and, and Oscar Pistorius was probably the best example of that. It's moved on even in the 30s three years I've been alive, where when I was a kid, you saw someone in a wheelchair and you thought, someone to be pitied. Do you think the effect of the Paralympics, Christopher,
0: you know, is it changing the way people perceive the disabilities? I think it is changing,
4: and we're more aware of it, etc., and also more aware of what is possible. I think the important thing is post-Paralympics, this particular Olympics, which have had enormous effect already. Where do we go from here? How do you keep that going? And that's the importance for the charity groups. It's also for the army, especially themselves.
0: Do we foresee more military personnel competing as a way of recuperating, Tim, just quickly?
5: I think so, yes, definitely. Uh, There's an interesting article in The Guardian today. It's talking about the fact that now people are being kept within the military, keeping their rank. There's a couple of captains still in the services, but their main job role is being a sportsman, a Paralympic sportsman within the services. So undoubtedly more. Two percent now. It's looking like five percent of our Paralympians will be military personnel in Rio. Okay, just to finish off, Christopher, uh, before we go, Christopher, there's a summit taking place in Tehran from today,
0: a gathering of 120 nations that Iran says is proof that it is not internationally isolated. Is the whole thing really significant?
4: Oh, yeah, it's certainly significant for Iran because it's it's hosting this, it's international importance. 7,000 delegates have been there, but if you really want to know if it's important, go to Washington and ask, why are the Americans
0: trying to stop people going? My thanks to Christopher Lee and to Tim, of course, and all our guests this week. If you've got any views on the topics we've covered this week, get in touch. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. And remember, you can hear the whole programme again from our website, bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. From me, Glenn Mansell, thank you for listening to this edition of Sitrep, and goodbye.